producer Trent here, Robin and Josie's guests today, both coming to us live from Australia. We've got comedy icon Sean McAuliffe and musician Jess Hitchcock. You can drop a tip in the jar at cosmicshambles.com slash stayathome for venues and artists who are struggling right now. Or you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash cosmicshambles or patreon.com slash bookshambles. Enjoy the episode. Good morning. Welcome to Shambles Stay at Home Festival. Good morning, Josie. Hi. You are, you are a cock hoop today, I believe. You are, are, are filled with uh, vim and vigour and verve. Yeah, and I just told somebody on Twitter, taxation isn't theft, you dumb prick. So I've had a really uh, great... Classic child-friendly <laughs> episode straight in there. Oh, no. um, <laughs> normally you've waited at least 10 minutes, so it's had more of an element of I'm... surprise. It's been a twist in the rolled dial sweary tales. Yeah, so basically my daughter is through some freak occurrence started sleeping through in the past sort of four or five days, bar one day. And I just can't, I cannot believe the difference. Like, and like, I imagine if she'd done this the whole of lockdown, it would have been a, a little skip in the park. It would have been a gentle breeze. How are you? You do look very different. You look, you look, you look very, very well. Well, and uh, we're ready for all those songs that we know you are wanting to perform today as well, and the tap routine, which you've been putting off for eight weeks, saying you've had sleep deprivation. You have no such alibi today. I'm, I'm good. I've been reading about the religion of ufology, uh, which is. Wow! Well, it's just basically it's 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 a book. I don't know where I put it actually. I start I started this morning by uh, it's 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 a new book uh, which is all about how uh, UFOs and the cult of UFOs and it is is a replacement for uh, or part of people's kind of religion that those glowing orbs in the sky, those kind of things that previously would have been. Now uh, I'm not entirely sure I agree with the book. Uh, uh, also because it has one of its advisors is Whitley Strieber, who famously wrote the uh, the book Communion about his alien abduction. So, uh, but yeah, so I've started off the day with alien abduction and a certain amount of kettlebell. So uh, I'm well, and uh, I, and also I have my one of my favourite show and tells today. I was just digging through my books, and uh, I'll get this out of the way before I mention Patreon and all of the other things. This is a lovely book from our friend Joanna Neary, who you might have seen on on the shows a few times before, and uh, it's called uh, Autobiography of a Lump of Coal. <laughs> uh, it's one of those beautiful late wow. 90s. I don't know how well you can see. Lovely cover. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it is. It's all about that. There's, there's the children around the fireplace going, oh, I wish it was a little bit warmer. Yes, stoke the coal, stoke the coal. Hello, I'm a piece of coal. Let me tell you about how I became a piece of coal. Why, how wonderful. A talking piece of coal. So it's it's a scientific book with uh, an anthropomorphized. Can coal be anthropomorphized? Maybe it can. Anyway, it is. I've got um, a show and tell, which is um, a proof copy of a very exciting book, Brown Baby by Nikesh, friend of the show. I'm so excited about it. I just started reading it. It's such a beautiful, heartfelt memoir. It's so funny as well. This is my exciting, but you can't get it for months, but just to feed, feed the thrills. But what you, um, that book reminded me of the fact that I have a book, which is... Um, an old life of Robert Owen, like a, a very mm. old sort of red uh, book. As in the naturalist 18... Robert Owen? No, as in the guy who set up Lanark, the sort of proto-socialist oh, right. guy. Um, it's um, 
uh, from 1840, I think. And I, I've never really read it because it's one of those ones that's really, really badly written, but it's just nice to have. My daughter, for some reason, is magnetically attracted to it and keeps taking it out of the shelf and giving it to me. And so I'm, I was like, okay, this is some sort of... I should read it. It's so badly written. It's like, upon the age of 19, Robert Owen went to a Smith's where he was paid seven and six, but that moved up to eight and six. And that, and you're like, babe, I don't need to know how much he earned of a week when he was 19. There's no one reading this going like, yes, but how much did he earn when he was 19 and a half? Like, it's like somebody. There are some people whose lives you find out that that, that was, that they were the pinnacles of their lives. Small wage changes <laughs> will take an entire chapter. As we know from uh, Donna Stell from It Ain't Half Hot Mum, his uh, autobiography, which is filled with details about the arguments he had over the development of a gravel path in his particular <laughs> uh, neck of, uh, of, of Rochdale. Um, I love I, maybe uh, your daughter is uh, is drawn to the smell, of course, because that can be one of the things of old books, can't it? Nice. The, uh, nice. This one actually is quite low scent for a book that's 140 years old. Um, the uh, the Notting Hill Book Exchange, which is one of the things that I miss a great deal at the moment during lockdown, uh, does actually have a sign in it saying, please do not smell the books until you have taken them home. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so Sad. I'll. Let's mention who's on today. Uh, later on, we have uh, someone who is an opera singer, who is a songwriter, who we've already seen. We, we've been able to see in, in her front room the number of instruments she can play. We're joined by Jess Hitchcock, uh, who is uh, in Melbourne at the moment. And uh, or in a moment, we're going to introduce you to one of my, well, just he's a comedian, he's an actor, he's an author. Uh, the first time I saw his his chat show in, in Australia, when I, I visited, I think, 2004, 2005, whatever it was, just blew me away. It was brilliant. It was wonderful and it was weird and uh, it, it is Sean McAuliffe we're going to be talking to him very very shortly and I'll just quickly do uh, a couple of things which is mentioned uh, tomorrow show, we've got two more shows this week these are the last of the daily shows this is uh, next week we're going to be doing new shows we're also going to be doing more Patreon based shows uh, so do go and look at our Patreon we kind of we've, we've been making free to access stuff for over 10 years now and we're still trying to make it as much as possible that is free to access Science Q&A will still be free to access uh, uh, the Quarantine Comedy Club uh, is still going to be free to to access. We will be doing lots of stuff like that. But because we have nothing in our diary for the rest of the year and maybe next year too, we are having to slightly rethink uh, the way that we're doing stuff. But there's there's oh, loads of things coming. How many weeks have we done daily shows for? Is it eight or nine? Eight, eight weeks. Um, and that, and we, I think we've averaged all in all, in adding the other shows, it's nine or ten shows uh, a week. So it's not bad. It's not been yeah. bad at all. I'm yeah, really, and yeah. we've raised um, twenty five thousand pounds, and that's you know towards art centres and uh, and some of the artists we know as well. So thank you very much, everyone who's been able to contribute. I know not everyone is able to, and that's why we want to try and make sure there's still lots of free to access stuff around. Oh, sorry, French just put up. How many is it, Josie? One hundred and six. One hundred and six shows. That's probably too many. We should probably done two a week and really thought about them very, very carefully. But that's never the way that we've worked, and that's no, the way no. it is in the title. So we are. Um, I think that's all the. Ha oh well, I should also mention our gig at the Royal Albert Hall is still going on, but in various people's attics instead. So uh, on the uh, on the seventeenth this Sunday, uh, we have uh, Kobe Smulders, who is uh, you, you will know from the uh, Marvel Avengers movies, and also How I Met Your Mother. And we have Lem Cisse, and we have British Sea Power, and we have Chris Hadfield, and Brian Cox, and uh, Helen Chersky, and loads and loads and loads of people. So uh, that's that's we're still making that show. Unlike Brian Adams, who's just been whining. Oh, I was meant to be doing the Albert Hall, but it's all unfair. We're still doing our show, Brian. 
And that's why we've got two top Canadians with us in Chris Hadfield and Kobe Smulders there to make up for that. The less whiny Canadians. Very few of them are actually whiny, I've found. Anyway, let's introduce our guest for today, Sean McAuliffe. Hello, Sean. How are you? Sean McAuliffe. Hello, Sean. How are you? Robert, I'm very well. And Josie, uh, nice to see you. You know, we've just had in Australia a, uh, a kind of slight relaxing of our lockdown uh, laws. So I've been able to go to the uh, to the op shop. Uh, and as you were showing, you were showing books before. I, I, I want to show you uh, this one, uh, which is uh, I Am Not Spock by uh, Leonard Nimoy. That's a good cover. I've not seen. Can you hold that up a little bit higher? I've, I want to see How's the whole that? of that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great cover. But they also have this one, which is uh, I Am Spock. So he, <laughs> I, I like the fact that, uh, that he can't make up his mind over a period of 20 years. I so, also uh, feel like somebody, the person who owned both of those books was like, me. when will there ever be a conclusion? They're both going. He's in a well, super I'm position. I'm not, sure they were, I'm not sure they were owned by the same person. I think I might, be, I might have brought them together. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm very happy with that. And the other thing I wanted to show you, is it too early? Can I show you this as well? No, this is a, I, I bought some art. I watched, uh, I watched your Phil Jupiter's episode and I saw that he made some art. But I, I did buy that for twenty dollars. Can you see that? Oh, wow! That, uh, that it's uh, it, <laughs> it was good value, and uh, it's pirate hat on. And I, <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm moved by it. So does that make it good art? Mm-hmm. I so. think that is. Do you know what? That is exactly what you are always looking for. Thrift store. That you find bland pictures of bridges and bubbling streams to find a, a cavalier pirate poodle or whatever it may be. I'm not entirely sure what the breed was. I know it probably wasn't a poodle. That is uh, magnificent. I want to recommend uh, the performance artist and uh, writer Scotty S-C-O-T-T-E-E does some really brilliant things where he goes to charity shops and he buys those very bland kind of, you know, like a a sailing boat or like some flowers and then he paints um antagonistic slogans on top of them and sells and resells them uh so you should everyone should go and check out his work it's really funny and uh, a good good thing to do for harvesting those canvases without yes, the yes exactly yeah i'm not i'm not drawing on that one though. that i can't better that no oh my god it would be a sin <laughs> There is a beautiful, a beautiful thing. There's, there's a, a bed and breakfast in Plymouth. It's probably no more uh, a long time ago because this was about 30 years ago. And it was the one where comedians would go and stay when they were doing the tour. And it was a weird one. It had a huge collection of air fresheners, but used air fresheners. All the way up the stairs were various different shapes of air fresheners, all dried to a husk inside. But someone had decided, no, that's part of the decorative process. And then on the walls were these, you know, those uh, kind of pictures of, of kittens, paintings of kittens, very fluffy with very pale blue backgrounds. And one night, one of the groups of comedians took each one down and then drew really lurid images of kittens underneath and then replaced them so that when people were staring at the picture of the beautiful kittens, little did they know the secret story that lay underneath. And I thought that was uh, <laughs> kind of almost utterly, po- you know, a, a beautiful, That's- pointless gesture. Yes, that's Dada-esque, isn't it? There's, there's, it's all set up and no punchline. Mm. I, l- I love things like stand up. My absolute dream. <laughs> I think punchlines are very overrated. So, Sean, I wanted to talk to you uh, about your love of comedy and also we talk about some weird books as well. But just to get this out of the way, first of all, because you know a lot of the work that you've done has also been kind of uh, satirical and uh, lampooning current affairs. And it is during this period of time 
uh, it has felt for the last few years, in fact, that the US, Australia and the UK have for some reason uh, been really drawn to uh, incompetent egotists as their leaders. Well, and that's, that's, it. that's interesting. You should, should say, you should say that because I'm kind of happy that you're including Australia in that because from our perspective, it was like, well, you know, the US and, uh, and the UK just, uh, you know, they, you've got the best ones and ours, we were slightly embarrassed by ours, <laughs> you know, in, 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 in a different way. Like they weren't really, they were kind of a little bit boring, we thought. But I, I'm, I'm happy that you're including uh, our pr present uh, Prime Minister. Uh, do you know his name? Uh, we, we often have to remind uh, people of his name on our show. No, it's not John Scott Howard Morrison. anymore, is it? Isn't it no, Scott? not John Howard. It's <laughs> Scott Morrison. <laughs> Scott um, Morrison. I, I always think it's Tony Abbott it's is the one. An onion, just totally cash, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's Tony, but that's uh, that's a while ago now. We've had we've had another I, one. We've had another one since then. We had Malcolm Turnbull in the middle, and yeah, then we had yeah. then we had uh, Scott Morrison now. So so uh, yes, the, the glory days of Tony Abbott eating a eating an onion for no readily apparent reason. They're, they're far behind us. So they're kind of straightening up a bit. We've got a straight man who's uh, who's our. Uh, Prime Minister at the moment. We just actually finished a, a, our show. We have a show over here called Mad as Hell, and uh, we'd we'd almost we'd almost gone halfway through when suddenly the virus hit oh, to the extent that we lost our uh, live audience, uh, and and there was a question whether we would continue with the TV show at all. And we were very lucky that we were able to just go on without a live audience. So so after eight or nine years of having a studio audience responding and giving us feedback and, and making the show what it was, we suddenly had to go dry and silent in an empty studio for the next six weeks. It was a very interesting experience. How did you find the difference? Did it affect what you wrote and, and what you chose to perform? Well, it did, it did eventually, but uh, the very first, for example, we, we, um, we record on a Tuesday and on the Friday we were told that we wouldn't have the studio audience next week. So most of it had already been written. So yeah. we couldn't really unwrite it or rewrite it to the extent that uh, we might have had we more time. So that was an interesting show because I kept just out of habit stopping uh, for the response. And uh, you just look like the joke died if there's, there's nothing that comes back. But over the next couple of weeks, we, we rejigged the lines slightly so that the actual uh, end line or the joke was probably about three or four words before the end of the sentence. So there was lots of bridging uh, dialogue that actually helped it sound more conversational uh, and and papered over the fact that there wasn't actually any studio audience there. But it was a really interesting experience. I, I'm trying to find some good in it because obviously there are lots of artists and comedians, particularly around the world, who who kind of just had to down tools during all of this. And I know uh, you guys, and you particularly, Robin, forever touring as far as i can tell on mm -hmm. uh, on social media you're, you're always out there uh, to suddenly be denied a living breathing audience is quite a uh, an assault on you as a as a comedian you, you just you end up take you end up kind of well i trust the people at home watching this are enjoying it uh mm -hmm. but you don't get the immediate feedback or validation that you might otherwise get I, I think, think it's it, going to be quite... Uh, sorry, Josie. I was just oh, no. I've been doing shows on Twitch and what I have to do is get the audience on the chat panel to write ha 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 <laughs> and then, uh, then my brain takes that fractionally. I get like a little hit when I just see it scrolling up and that's what I have to deal with. That's, that's well, my only... That's interesting. 
you're going to get you're, you're going to get, get used to, to get that, used and you're to that, and you're going to need that when you go back on stage. You're, yes, you're going to need the visual design. validation as well as the oral. Yes, because I uh, so um, Nish Kumar who does um, the Mash Report here. Um, mm-hmm. I, I can't remember whether it was him saying it or whether that somebody else was saying it, talking about the show. But when he was performing it in lockdown again, it was without the audience, and I think what it led to was them sort of being able to tailor the material more to them than to the audience if you see what I mean so actually really really like make it a more direct speaking from their heart and their sensibilities did you find yeah yeah I think it I think it can become can become more personal I think it 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 ends up you end up because we have it's not just me on the show there are other cast members who pretend to be people I'm interviewing so we were kind of amusing ourselves and we were we were you know hopefully that that is part of the enjoyment at home as well but the the odd thing is is that we we because we were still in the same studio and still had the same space to fill kind of as a performer uh for the home audience watching everything was exactly the same except there was no laughter so for them um it just took a few weeks they kept saying no no you need to put in fact, we got this officially too. That the suggestion being that we put some some canned laughter on, which uh, would be Ooh. I just feel very I, I couldn't do that. I don't even like sweetening the show. Uh, you know, just just even if they're laughing, kind of little thing. I reckon if one person laughs, that's kind of fun when one person laughs at a joke, and you can kind of play with that a little bit. But um, uh, yeah, I couldn't imagine. I, I think I think that'd be the end of me. I think if I if I put canned laughter on, and then no one would ever trust me again. It's very presumptive as well, isn't it? The, the the decision of how loud. I think this joke must be because then suddenly you become very arrogant as opposed to someone who, you know, sometimes it's almost when people fall into the, the, the spell of what comedy is, they don't see the intention, you know, written on the comedian's face. But they do if they go, do you know what, Sean McAuliffe, this is how funny he thought. Let me play back that canned laughter. That's how funny he thought that yeah. pun was. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a slight. Remember the old days of Mash. Mash was a really interesting show because they wouldn't play the canned laughter during the surgery scenes. Surgery scenes that obviously made a decision that we won't, you know, that surgery and where people are you know potentially dying and the and the and the actors are covered in blood. That's not an appropriate time to hear canned laughter. But but it, I remember how shocking it was. I think I might have been about fifteen when I was watching it. Suddenly, for the laughs to disappear like that. It was you just get used to hearing them, even though you know they're fake. Yeah. And you almost you, yeah. And even with I think Get Smart as well, uh, in, towards the end of its run, decided to abandon its um, uh, its canned laughter while not altering its timing at all. It's like they'd shot it all, and they thought, oh, let's forget about the the canned laughter. So it was kind of I don't know. It was. It, the, I, I suppose the, I suppose the same thing happened for a lot of people when um, you know the office started. I think Ricky Ricky Gervais show was probably the first big show that everyone watched that that uh, didn't have any canned laughter on it. It was wow. ostensibly sitcom, and that wasn't that long ago. No, it was that late. That's that's quite shocking. To I think there was, was people bef- like us, which was a kind of slightly similar yeah. thing, yeah. which was, was uh, so that. But that's an interesting thing because I think, and I'm sure someone will pick me up on this, but. Mash in the UK, we had a laughter-free version. There were two separate versions of Mash. There was actually a version which did not have the the laughter track on it. And as far as I remember, the UK's version that we had on BBC Two did not have that. 
I think so the last it was very couple, weird. I think, I think the last couple of well, from from the Australian perspective, I think the last couple of seasons of Mash didn't have a laugh track on it. Uh, but uh, it's, it's interesting that I didn't realise that that you had it from the get go. That uh, there might have uh, you know that there wasn't any laughs on it. Um, because it feels like you'd have to edit it differently. If it didn't have any laugh track on it, it feels like you'd have to edit it more tightly, I would have thought. Otherwise, it would seem a bit slow. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll, we'll Trent, check that up. Check that up. The um, the other one I was thinking was League of Gentlemen. We've had Reese and, and, and Mark on this laugh before. Track on it. Yeah, and that was one of they had. It was one of their deals. Make something which I do think is one of the most beautifully shot TV series, oh, and such uh, the fullness of that world and, and it part holds of the up deal. Twenty five years so well. It's it's yeah. so fresh still, so interesting. Does the, the, uh, does the laugh track, track jar a bit when you watch it now? If, if you watch League of Gentlemen now, does it seem weird that it's got a laugh track on it? Well, I, I mean, I know it was time. To, I, I think to some people it did. I think if it was a world that you were already very keen on, if you were a bit of a horror fan and that was you had a similar interest. But I, I think the thing was that they every now and again they'd go, we don't want to have a laughter track, but we do want to have that crane shot. Well, if you want the crane shot, you've got to, and it was that was the deals that they were doing. I think even to the extent that that, that uh, all of them sometimes would chip in their own money to make sure that the thing looked as as as, uh, as they want it to but that that was an interesting because i don't think it needs a laughter track at all because i also think that in comedy like that uh it is kind of quite a uh the the, the darkness and the uncanny nature of it means that not that not everywhere is the same laugh for everyone as you said that sometimes there is the single laugh and sometimes there's the group laugh and sometimes there's half the room going hang on a minute is that you know what Stuart lee plays with a lot you know which is yes. you know that's like they're really you know there they're not you know he, he loves playing with where who mm. is understanding it and the alienation for the rest of the audience he loves to alienate his audience there was a very there was a very interesting um, steve coogan after he did Knowing me, knowing you, there was a bit of a break, and then he came back with a second uh, version of Alan Partridge, and I think it was I'm Alan Partridge. It, it was at I'm Alan Partridge, but he had a laugh. He had a, there must have been enough of a studio component to it for him to have a, a live studio audience. Uh, uh, but but it was it, the one that followed that one didn't have it at all. It seemed like there was a transitional series that he did where where it could have easily gone without the. Um, this is so funny because when we start talking about laugh of where for me it seems so modern and yet so odd to have a laugh track with league of gentlemen and uh i'm alan partridge and thinking about the fact that it's almost like yeah it's like this thing has got strapped onto it something so anachronistic and it's sort Mm. of struggling its way into the future but um yeah that i i know that i'm alan partridge has a laugh track on it because it jars with me to know it Yes, and it was something. odd. It was odd because I was sitting there. I was sitting there watching it, thinking, watching, it, thinking, is there a lot? Is there an audience somehow watching this as it's being yes. performed? Because the timing, the timing seems so right for the laughs that were happening. There was obviously an OB or an outside component as well, which yeah. I'm assuming was played in. But with League of Gentlemen, none of it would have been performed in front of a live audience. That would have just been played. Oh, actually, some of, some of it was. I think because oh, you've it? got a, you've like, got a few uh, like Little uh, Britain, like Little Britain. Yeah. yeah? 
So it they was, were formed. Oh, it's gosh, me being so, really ignorant of this. So some of it would have been in front of, and then would they have well, just because you've got things the like the, the, the Toad family and all of those people. All of those are are sets and studio sets, BBC studio sets. I should say, by the way, that we've put a lot of pressure on Trent because obviously this, when it goes out on YouTube after the live version, will have a lot of track placed on it in the most uh, anachronistic moments possible. Uh, we've so checked, by the way, and it is right, MASH on BBC Two had no laugh track. Uh, wow. CBS, it was contractual. CBS demanded that MASH had a laughter track. So CBS, it was in the contract that it had to have a laughter track. BBC Two showed it without. So I presume that within the the, the, the writers, the intention had not been to to have uh, a laughter track. Fascinating. So the, with canned laughter as well, that it wasn't it wasn't necessarily somebody just literally artificially putting in laughs for the laughs. It would have been an audience reacting to that show, them being recorded and placed which, in. Which one, Mesh? Which one, Mesh? No, no just in general. Like, was was there well, a set? type of way of doing it well there was a i mean up until gee up until and beyond mash i think there was a machine it wasn't there was a very famous machine that everybody used all the laughs were the same all these people were dead they were they were from that they were culled from the dick van dyke show i think and also even some <laughs> earlier shows around there. Laughs. yeah they're all for dick van dyke you know and uh, i'm happy with that because i figure they're pure joyful laughs but mm. uh uh, it, it was a, it was at a point, and and maybe uh, maybe it was it certainly wouldn't have been used in the UK for its productions. I would have thought there was a proud tradition coming out of Variety where you would simply perform whatever you were going to perform. It was a comedy in front of an audience. I don't think there would have been too many television shows coming out of Britain that would have had actual canned laughter on it. He sweetened a bit, but I would have thought most of most of them i'm thinking i'm thinking the 50s like norman wisdom show for example or or uh, they would have all had studio audiences wouldn't they i mean well, there's an interesting there, there was a stand-up series that was done that when it was filmed it turned out the room it was filmed in uh it just didn't work it wasn't working and they did have to crowbar in the laughs and it was a really interesting thing to oh, watch okay. if you What's knew about this I'll tell you afterwards, just in case. Uh, I'll tell all of you afterwards. The uh, no, I think I think I'm right in saying there was a BBC stand-up show, the, the stand-up show that was recorded in Edinburgh during the Fringe, and it was a really hot room, as so many of them are, and it just was not conducive to really. And you can see the disconnect between the look on the comedian's face and the level of laughter. And it's a really <laughs> interesting thing. So you can see someone sweating and panicking, and yet the experience we hear is someone storming it. And I mean, that's the beautiful thing when, when you sometimes see that audience shot, the difficulty of an audience shot where all five people are laughing. There's always four people laughing and one person there going, Mm. And yeah, and, and I remember watching as a friend of mine was directing a stand-up show. We go, no, oh, that one's frowning. No, that that one's just eating peanuts. You know that that whole thing. <laughs> just yes. five people who are in tandem laughing together. Well, I think that happened even in the US because I, I remember watching you know Bob Hope specials, and he would he would make a joke, and then he would look at the audience, and he'd make a crack about how they didn't get it. But as you say. For us at home, they'd, they'd filled the gap with a with a canned laugh. So he should have just shut up. He would have gotten away with it. And you're That's right about the the cutaways to the audience were always uh, they clearly weren't from that moment anyway. They were just they must have had a store of these reaction shots that they just cut to a bit like the way Python used to cut to mm -hmm. the. Uh, the old lady, the old ladies applauding. It was it was that uh, factory made. I think a lot of those shows. 
Oh, I love things like that. I'd never imagined we were going to do a half hour uh, thing all about laughter, but this has been, I, I love doing it's stuff like this. Very interesting. Let's, there's a great story, by the way, and I wish I could remember the title. It's by Harlan Ellison, who had one of the most incredible minds in Feckend in terms of the number of stories he wrote. Really amazing writer. And he wrote one which was all about someone who's basically their afterlife was the existence of their laugh. That they were someone who was within that canned laughter track. And it was as if their spirit was within that recording. I'll try and find out, which I, I think it might be in the collection Shatterday, but I might be wrong on that. We're going to take a quick break now and have uh, some music from someone who is also you're you're in melbourne aren't you uh sean i am yes yes someone else who's in melbourne so this is well the distance is crazy isn't it um this is as as i mentioned before heart sick i was supposed to get to go there last month and it's just i kept imagining imagining walking up and down roads in the city and just trying to pretend i was there but that's what you have to do before each Skype thing, because we do so many of these, is walk just a little bit around, you know, your home. And then as you sit back down to the webcam, go, and now I am in Melbourne. And mm-hmm. it's, you know, to somewhere psychosomatically you are. Uh, anyway, this person has my favourite cushion that we've had on in all <laughs> eight weeks. So before we even hear her singing, we're, uh, as you mentioned before, uh, she's an opera singer. She's a singer. She's a songwriter. Uh, her music is available at uh, Jess Hitchcock Music. And uh, Jess, how are you? I'm good, thanks. I'm good. How are you guys going? <laughs> Good. Yeah, we were, we were just, just saying that uh, about uh, about the lack of. Uh, we did you have quite a heavy uh, period of gigging uh, over what has now become the lockdown? Yeah, I actually was um, tuning in beforehand, and I totally agree with Sean. Playing to empty theaters and studios for musicians as well is a total change of pace. It's really weird, and you're sort of staring at a camera lens, which is something that. Um, doing live performances you're never doing that and so it's actually taking me a little while to get into the routine of you know staring at myself basically while I'm playing instead of staring at an audience and or just sitting in an empty room and nobody's there and you have to rely on people commenting online to um, sort of give you the reactions that you normally would get from performing so yeah it's been really strange (laughs) and also acoustically it must be different like if you're perform- like if you're performing and and there's no kind of it it just isn't sucked totally. up by the people it just kind of bounces around no absorption whatsoever I've, I've, and I very um my voice rings a lot <laughs> so I have a, a very projecting voice and I played it to a theatre actually and they had where they were filming for a writers festival and instead they decided to actually just put all the seats away and so I was just playing in this sort of empty box. Like <laughs> pinging everywhere I was like oh god I hope it sounds like it translated well across online but for me acoustically it sort of sounded like I was singing in a huge bathroom <laughs> I think there is something even though for the performer you don't get that sensation I think the one thing which is even on the kind of you know, the, the the low budget way that, that these a lot of these things are done there is still that immediacy one of the reasons we started doing this was that we we're getting messages from people going oh man we were going to come to this gig and that gig and you realize that that loss of connection and strange enough, the bit that we're all just looking down a lens and we're all in, you know, our attic or a front room or whatever it is. I think in some ways it's not the same, but it is still giving people something. And, and the way that, you know, that there's a beautiful thing in watching someone sing a wonderful song. And then just in the background, seeing someone open the door, look in and go, oh, no, he's just doing his song. And yeah. the, the, <laughs> these are the things that you don't get in the theatre so much. And I think yeah, that it still gives 
I think being on screen has definitely created um, more of a personal relationship with audience members because you don't get time to have conversations. And although you're having conversations with yourself most of the time via screen, you don't get time to do that sort of thing in the gig because you just sort of go, oh, on to the next song, on to the next song. And, um, yeah, it's been an interesting, yeah, my boyfriend has walked in while I've been doing stuff lots. Or, yeah, or something, you know, something's arrived from the post and the, oh, and the yeah. knocking furiously at the door and I'm like oh be quiet <laughs> yeah it's been so it's been don't you think yeah, yeah. sorry don't you think the uh, the experience the uh, the rawness of it of, of whatever you're doing whether it's comedy or music anything done on this particular platform uh is a great equalizer because everybody looks the same everybody you don't get the assist and support you might from a very well post-produced piece of piece of art you know where uh, you've got your makeup or you've got you, you know you've got your special effects or whatever everybody everybody from brad pitt to uh to to you robin that we all kind of look the same in our in, well, hang on I, hang on don't just sorry, stop there sorry. the most extreme differences <laughs> well this is uh, trent cut the feed for sean it's not working out at all as a relationship no i know exactly what you mean <laughs> yeah yeah it kind of it kind of um it's very, it's very egalitarian. This, and maybe that's what you're saying, Jess. Maybe, the, maybe pe people at home who uh, are, are going to relate to uh, to you or to, to Josie or Robin in in a, in, a, in a different way, in exactly the same uh, way to each other. I think that's a. I think that might be a good thing that's come out of this. I think so. And also, I, I, I mean, we talked about this before, but I actually really love seeing the little bits and pieces of people's houses and where they spend their time. And, you know, I can see all of your books behind you, Robin, and same with you, Sean. And I just, I love getting a little insight into what's happening in other people's houses because, you know, these are people you don't normally get to go and spend time with um, at home. You just see them at geese. <laughs> Look at that teddy. I don't normally have my teddy bear. My 51-year-old teddy bear, Snubby, that was a previous show and tell and is now on the show and tell poll just behind. No. <laughs> oh, look at this. Oh. <laughs> oh. Oh. Love it. Yeah. Okay, I'll tell you what. You can tell that Sean's been in the business a long time. Straight from that insult to then, I'll tell you what, <laughs> plugging a book will feed his performer's ego. Mm. Excellent oh. work. Yeah. <laughs> um, Jess, what's the first song you're going to sing? I'm going to sing you a song. It's called Running in the Dark. And um, I actually wrote this song after I had watched um, both versions of A Star is Born. I saw the newest one recently and then I sort of didn't realise that it was actually a remake. And so I went back and I watched the first one because I, I love old movies. And it was. I've got a shocker for you. Which first one did you watch? <gasps> what? What? How many are there? There are four. I watched the one with um, who is it? Barbara Streisand or whoever. Oh, oh no, 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 no. James Mason and Judy Garland, and there oh, is no, no. that's the, that's the second version, but that is the best one when what? she says, "I am Mrs. Norman Maine at the end. Whoa! I promise you, you are in for such a treat, and it also means you can get an extra verse out of this song. What's the yeah. first one? How many versions are there? Four. First one is, but four. There's Frederick March and do you remember Sean? It's it's Frederick Lionel Stander is in it as well from TV. Is it Carol Lombard. It might, Lombard. Be a, it might be, yeah. And well, Lionel Stander. Be, from that would be the 1930s, I'm guessing. Probably yeah. if it's Frederick March, yeah. Yeah, I think it's, it's, a, it's a very it's an old standard. That story is a is a and I'm sure there are silent movie versions of it as well. 
Uh, we should uh, get get trained on it immediately. <laughs> this is like when you find out a version of a song that you love is just a cover version, and then it's, it's unbearable. Yeah. And then you're devastated. That happens yeah. to me all the time. Especially if the cover is better original. I feel bad for that person then that somebody covered their song better than them. That might happen it to might me in the future. Seem... <laughs> when you see yeah. people hearing the original version of Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah, which I love, but they've heard Britain's Got Talent sing it or whatever. They've heard it as a kind of, you know, what I would say as, as a cruise like standard. It very well. Yeah. yeah, Jeff Buckley is the version, that, the go-to version. I don't know about yeah, Britain's thank you. <laughs> but yeah, this song is based on basically the storyline of um, of those movies, those four movies that I didn't realise. <laughs> and um, yeah, or just, you know, about being in love with somebody that you shouldn't be. So, yeah, did you, what, should I play? <laughs> yes, please. Ladies and okay. gentlemen, please welcome to her front room and yours, Jess Hitchcock. <laughs> Thanks. Well, I find myself out on the road again. I have seen it all because I've been here before. I remember you like it was yesterday. You haven't changed it all, but I know I shouldn't stay. Because I'm a glutton for the drama that you bring. I'm a fixer now like I have always been and when you speak to me so soft and low i remember why i loved you all those years ago there were steps we took that we can't take back promises were made for our lives were in a wreck then i saw your face familiar and scared and i knew i'd never leave you i stayed this despair because i'm a glutton for the drama that you bring i'm a fixer now like i have always been when you speak to me so soft and low i remember why i loved you But you'll take it all at once And I feel I'm lost without you But when I'm with you When I'm with you It's like running in the dark Because oh, I'm a glutton for the drama that you bring speak to me so soft and low I remember why I loved you all those years ago I remember why I loved you all those years ago (laughs) 
Thanks, Thank guys. Thank you so much. That was great. That was really beautiful. Um, this is this is what I love as well is that it, it, when we have these moments like this and realizing that you know people in the next door house get a little kind of session all the time. You know, I I think people who live next door to you are very lucky. I didn't know how many friends I had who owned drum kits and have decided to learn the drums <laughs> during the session. That has been a far more negative experience for their neighbours. <laughs> yeah, my neighbour actually, um, I'm good friends with her, and she always texts me every now and then and says, "You're singing, it's so beautiful." And like, I like to sing late at night, unfortunately, because that's when I feel most creative. And so I sing quietly, but she's like, "Oh, it's so soothing hearing you through the walls." <laughs> Oh, no, yeah. it's a, yeah. You you are you, a good you are a good neighbor for lockdown. Thank you very much. We'll we'll hear another song. I also, think, at the end of the show as well. Sorry, it's one Jess. of those things where for us, like getting to see you perform live is just so thrilling. It's it's yeah. It's as good as being in. Well, it's probably not as good as being in the room, but it's nearly as good as being in the room. <laughs> Would it be a great it's surprise room, if it turns Jess, out we are Jess. in the next door room? Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're in your the kitchen. Acoustics are, the acoustics are good, Jess, too, if you're worried. That's, your room sounds great. Oh, cool. That's awesome. Yeah, it's a bit of a box, this room. It's actually no, no wind. It's like an old terrace house. There's only a skylight. So I think it's actually good for soundproofing, which is nice. No, that, that, that sounded absolutely brilliant. And we'll, uh, as we mentioned as well, uh, uh, Jess Hitchcock music is way. Thirty-two film called What Price Hollywood. So there we go. That's your uh, lesson. In and I really do recommend, by the way, anyone who has not seen the James Mason and Judy Garland version. I mean, James Mason is one of my favourite actors. Judy Garland is, of course, magnificent as well. It is a really brilliant, heart-wrenching, and I, I personally think the greatest version of uh, that story. So worth watching. Um, I thought but we could talk. You've done is anyone who's not seen a star who's is not born. seen a star is born. You basically said, "Oh, your homework is fifteen hours. It's not just four. Fifteen uh, hours of homework." It could have been four stars born or one Tarkovsky. I was thinking, what am I going <laughs> to give the people today? Um, I've got a couple of, but because last time that we we met up when we were all together in Melbourne, we were talking about uh, novels, and this is the best one that I've picked up since. I think this was when I was in uh, Christchurch uh, about ten months ago, walking down one of those weird streets with just like kind of chain burger places, driving burger places, and then there was a shop which I think probably did electrical repair, but also was just filled with books. And they were interesting and weird. And when I walked in, the man said, thank you so much for coming in. Would you like a lolly and all this kind of stuff? So it was it was great. Um, it was like you died and gone to heaven. That's what your version of heaven is. It, it was books and lollies. That's all I'm after. But also and, just the idea that as you show up, they say, thanks for coming in, Robin. Coming We've, been in wait- Robin. We've been waiting for you. Yeah, and then then as I turned back, it's disappeared. It was there's nothing. <laughs> it's been knocked down. Well, that bookshop, that bookshop burnt down 60 years ago. Um <laughs> I, as well as getting a, a, a quite a nice uh, R.S. Murdoch first edition, because the balance of the universe must remain, R.S. Murdoch on one hand, the film tie-in novel of Brian De Palma's Phantom of Paradise. Oh, wow. Uh, wow. Which is quite a treat, because that is obviously not, there's not that many copies of this. It's one of those film tie-ins which includes uh, reasonably, uh, oh, there we go. There's, there's a few. I'm not going to open it too much in case the pages fall out. They are solid now. But it's, uh, this was. He sold his soul for rock and roll. 
it was basically a rock and roll remake, remake. of Phantom of the Opera. Uh, Paul yeah. Williams, who who wrote amongst other things Rainbow Connection. Uh, Paul Williams, who was a big star, and then had that thing where he just vanished. My brother-in-law used to have all his albums, and then he wrote Rainbow Connection and various songs for the Muppets, stuff like that. Great songwriter, um, and he plays the villain in it. And uh, I would, yeah, this is, uh, so that's the best film time because we were talking before, you have a film tie-in of the Rasputin-based movie, uh, Australian movie, Harlequin. Yes, I do. Yeah, well, my wife, my wife does. And it's, I won't, I won't get up and find it, but it is just behind me, uh, actually up there. Uh, and uh, yeah, we, it was a, it was a, these books are, um, they're novelizations, aren't they? Someone gets the screenplay and they fill in all the, all the gaps and turn it into paragraphs and describe things. And it's not really writing though, is it? It's, I noticed that my sons have got uh, a back to the future film book tie by a fellow called George Gipe, G I P E. If you want to check him out, check out his oeuvre, but he does tend to only write novelizations. It's very interesting because another one of this is rather than a novelization of a film, this is a novelization of a band you might know this one. This uh, is um, Moorcock and Butterworth's Time of the Hawk Lords, which is uh, where Hawkwind are turned into, it's a future, dystopian future, um, and, and Hawkwind are then partially fictionalised. Um, and so uh, I can't remember who Lemmy is in this, Baron Brock, who is actually David Brock, lead guitar, 12-string guitar, synthesizer, organ and vocals. The, the Thunder Rider, that's actually uh, Nick Turner, sax, oboe, flute and vocals. Colour, Count Motorhead, Lemmy, bass and vocal. And it's just this, and there it's were two of these. Um, How does that work? How does that work? Does that work? Oh, sorry, Josie. Sorry, Josie. No, no, no. I was just being silly. Please, what you're going to say. Well, I don't think I was going to be any any more serious about it. But I, I'm just curious as to as to what that is a time for. Is it? Is it? Does it connect with an album uh, in some way, or uh, is it a? Uh, it's just something. Yeah, it's just. Uh, I, I think. I think Michael Moorcock might have been friends with Hallwind, though. From what I can gather, though, Michael Moorcock is in the big print michael moorcock who again incredible output by michael moorcock and 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 some brilliant stuff in the jerry cornelius novels and things like that but i think he was less involved than the size of his name of this would suggest <laughs> and it was predominantly written by uh by the the other guy uh butterworth um i've forgotten actually even his uh uh his his, uh, his first, in fact i don't say even ever tell you uh, oh, there we go. Michael Butterworth. Uh, author's note, while the characters in this story are based on actual people, we wish to make it clear the description of these characters are entirely fictitious and based on roles used by members of Hawkwind on stage and recorded performances. I find that a beautiful addition to the universe. Of, That's of, very of, nice. Of, of, very of, nice. Of Can I put a question to you guys? Because I have, I have two books up there uh, in the shelf, one, uh, and they're both written by a fellow called Peter George. Uh, one is called Dr. Strangelove, and the other one, uh, other one is, I can't quote, my glasses aren't strong enough to tell me what it is, but it was the book upon which Dr. Strangelove was based. So Peter George wrote this book that Kubrick used. Uh, it it might have even been, was it, I'll find it in a minute. I'll find it in a minute for you. Uh, so Kubrick, Terry Southern, and I think Peter George did the screenplay for Dr. Strangelove. Um, Trent has just written Red Alert, and either Red that's Alert. the title of the book or we're all in serious trouble. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's quite right. Red Alert. Red Alert. In fact, I think it, I think that book was turned into a into a film and played straight uh, as well as being adapted into Dr. Strangelove. But then Peter George, after Dr. Strangelove was made, he went and rewrote his original book huh. uh, using not only his original book but also the screenplay that 
Kubrick and, and Terry he, Southern. He canonized the screenplay. He was he, like, yeah, this is all canon. This is all canon. I did it. Yes. That's amazing. Yeah, two film tie-ins for the, for the price of one. That's great. Now I now I know what I'm going to be looking for this afternoon. <laughs> Thinking of Kubrick, have you seen the film Room 237? Yes. I have not. No, no, I haven't. It's so weird, isn't it, Josie? Yes, it's, it's very meditative. It's lots of people kind of talking about... Uh, hang on. It's, it's about The Shining and it's about people's It's, it's basically lots of different people's intense interpretation of what The Shining means. Yes, so yes, there's yes. one guy who says because there is this one tin can in one shot where the child is looking at Scatman Crothers, uh, which is in perfect, perfect, and it has a picture of a Native American on it. It turns out that that is the starting point for realizing that the entire film is merely it's it's, it's predominantly about the genocide of uh, of of the indigenous people of uh, uh, the United States of America. And then the next person comes up straight away and says, "Well, you see, the reason that I realized this was entirely about what happened." In nazi germany was looking at the german typewriter now the german typewriter and then and then you have another person who comes up and he goes and you'll see in this particular shot uh the as as the character moves i forget it's barry nelson as he moves around you'll see that kubrick has very carefully made it appear that the paper stack there eventually looks as if it's his erection right there's all of these um, blind men and the elephant isn't yeah they're all touching a different piece. How extraordinary! Someone's decided to film these nutcases. Yeah, but they're, they're, a lot of them are—they're—they're they're, they're academics. They're—they're they're, you know—they're people who've—they—they've seen their form of academia. In, so they see a number in shot and they go, why would he have, why would 42 appear in that corner? And then there's someone else who's repeatedly drawn maps of the Overlook Hotel and why it doesn't actually make sense. So all of these maps overlaid and yeah, it's a really, you know, when people find their own personal religion and for some people it will be a certain film and they go, this, this is. I wonder what Kubrick would make of that because, okay, because, okay. uh, The Shining's 1981. Am I right there in 1981? I think. So VHS uh, probably hasn't kicked in. I think that was probably a couple of years later. Uh, This ilk of director or filmmaker that for all intents and purposes, once the film's out there, uh, uh, people will see it at cinemas and uh, maybe, I don't think he was too keen on television, so presumably he thinks, okay, well, that'll, uh, it'll be re-released at some point, but people aren't going to be watching it in the way that people do obsessively watch films now, where you, you may well have seen a film in your life over 50 or 60 times. Um, it, it's, it's very interesting that, you know, that now, if you make a film now, you, you could probably deliberately put all those things in there, hoping there'll be some sort of online chat about them, whether it's the 42 in the corner or the, the penis-shaped uh, uh, piece of paper or whatever it is. But back in the, back in the old days, uh, this stuff wasn't even thought about too deeply. And I, and I, I, would, I would say probably Kubrick would be in that group too, but he, he certainly wanted some structural integrity to his work and obviously thought very deeply about it, but I don't think he thought as deeply about it as the people uh, that are in this particular film. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's it's. Sorry, Josie. No, I was going to say you're never going to analyze your work to the well, extent, that, are you? you? You just don't have the time because you're making it and moving on. You know, so you can't. Yeah, I guess. I guess you know the answer too. I mean, I guess you've probably yes. come to a, probably come to a conclusion. 
to a conclusion about what the scene means or what the imagery is all about. And you don't really need to think of multiple interpretations or what other people might read into it or project onto it. Um, it is, it is, it's a strange echo chamber now. I'd really recommend it. It's different yeah, and also on screen, which is quite a nice technique. So they, they, you, you hear them talking, you see the maps, you see the different shots and all of that kind of thing, but you never then have that extra, oh, they look like, you know, it removes that form of judgment, which, yeah, it's kind of very uh, interesting. So, yeah, that, that's another thing I'd recommend. I was going to ask you a little bit because the last time we've talked to you, you're a great fan of, of the, the kind of classic slapstick comedians. And uh, we were talking beforehand, just, just this week we put out the... Um, the the 50th anniversary conversation which i had with the goodies in january which of course was a uh, you know a big celebration and and does have uh, some you know a lot of sadness to it to it now but it's still that night was a great celebration and for you growing up in australia i mean that was the thing is when when the announcement of uh, you know tim's tim's death came the number of people from australia that i was communicating with because they mean so much don't they there Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, from um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, from um, let's see. I'm I'm now fifty seven, but when I was about fifteen, fourteen years old, uh, we we would arrive home from school, and the goodies would be on television at about four thirty or five o'clock in the afternoon, and that would be every night of the week. And I'm not sure whether they were still then making. I'm trying to think how old I would have been. This would have been in the seventies, late. 70s, they still would have been making their program, would they not, for probably mm. been around a bit. You know, they went to Thames and they went back to the, the BBC, I think. Uh, but there were a few different versions of, of the Goodies series over about an eight-year, nine-year period. Mm. Um, but, but, you know, as far as the, uh, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation was concerned, it was in syndication. So you would probably see, um, you'd see everything within a year and then you'd start to see your favourite episodes and you'd sort of wait for them to turn up. And uh, uh, at one point, I think, because Monty Python was on it, you'd have to wait until 8.30 or 9 o'clock at night to watch That's them. A bit racier, wasn't it? It's a bit it racier was a bit, sometimes. Yes, it was some, there was something a bit forbidden about Python. So, so, and it was only on once a week too. That's the other thing. It was a bit rarer. So, you know, we kind of were interested in that. Uh, but... Uh, uh, it was a special event booking of the television set in the house, whereas the goodies was just ours. You know, it was just available at, at all the times. It was they were our friends. We were kind of a bit felt a bit closer to them as a result. So uh, whenever um, uh, when Tim Brooke Taylor was with us, and uh, certainly uh, Gra Gra Graham uh, Garden and uh, and Bill Oddie, whenever they would come out and visit Australia uh, during the eighties and nineties, and even I think as recently as this last decade. Uh, and they, they were just huge, hugely attended. Uh, they'd play the Sydney Opera House and fill it out. Wow. And this is just with just with a Q and A session, you know. Wow. And they'd show they'd show clips and bits and, and which we were familiar lazy. with. Yeah, it was a it was a lazy. It was a it was a victory lap, and we were very happy for them to <laughs> to, to run around and, and wave to us. But uh, uh, one of my great regrets is that I once got a, an email from Graham Garden, and he uh, he. My name had been suggested to him for an Australian version of a radio show that he does over in the UK. Uh, is it called? I'm sorry, I haven't a clue. Am I? Have I got the name? Yeah, 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 yeah. And there was some talk of maybe doing that over here as a radio program, or properly, probably adapt it to a television program. And I, uh, 
for for whatever reason, I think I'd, I was already doing something at the time. I couldn't I couldn't do it, or even just have continue to have conversations with him. I think that would have been enough for me, even if it had never been made. Been nice just email back and forward. Uh, but uh, you know, in my limited experience, he, he seemed a lovely man, and I always kind of warmed to him. Uh, of all of them, I think I probably warmed to Graham Gardner most, maybe because I looked a bit like him at, at school. Yeah. They are all of them, and Graham, of course, is yeah, is a as a big fan of silent movies. I mean, I do the he does the slapstick festival as well. That's one of the reasons we've so often done goodies events, and uh, and they're they're always sold out, and people are always so delighted. But you know, his, his enjoyment when we were showing some of the clips for the fiftieth anniversary. In fact, all of them watching the replication of moments of Keaton and moments of Chaplin and all of those things. Yeah, you know, there is still such a delight in that, and and I wondered if if in any way that was part of your journey or when you started to realise the importance of people like Keaton? Well, I know that it was even before then, because uh, in Australia, we used to, before we had no option but to watch sport on the weekend, they would often run uh, a movie matinee. They would have a couple of films. And sometimes there would be those ones that Robert Youngson put together. Now, Robert Youngson used to do these compilation films using, I guess, what he assumed were public domain silent movie footage. And I think one of them was called The Great chase or the great locomotive chase or it might have just been called chase but it was a cent mainly it was it was a lot of senate footage of people running after other people and chasing each other in cars but most of it was from the general which was of course the the, the wonderful film of, of buster keaton and uh, i remember uh, watching that a few times because you know it would turn up uh, once or twice a year and uh, uh, a lot of laurel and hardy robert youngson did a lot of laurel and hardy compilations Terrible music he'd put over them, but it was kind of our only access to them because, uh, you know, you wouldn't see a full or complete silent movie on television and it certainly wouldn't be playing at the local cinema when you're a kid. Um, so I had a pretty good working knowledge of silent movie films and, and classic gags. So when the goodies came along... I was able to, I was, I felt very clever because I was able to go to school the next day and say, oh yes, well, of course, in 1926, <laughs> uh, Buster Keaton did that, uh, did that joke, but they'd always do something extra with it. There'd always be, a, the goodies were, the goodies were paying homage. They weren't just nicking the jokes. Mm. Well, that is, I mean, what I find amazing is watching old Keaton movies, some of which are, are very melancholy now. There was one that we showed, and I've totally forgotten that. It, it's not called um, Our, Our Relations, but it's it's where he returns to the South to reclaim what he thinks is a beautiful mansion ends up just being Our a shed. Our Hospitality. Our Hospitality, of course. Yes, um, and we showed that at the uh, at Bristol Cathedral in January. And it probably had, a, with a brilliant live accompaniment by the uh, European Silent Movie Orchestra, it was absolutely great. Wow. And, but it's very it's actually there's some great gags in it but most of it is a melodrama and that's a really interesting thing with keaton chaplin certainly less so and, and harold lloyd not at all um but with with keaton there is something where you can see why beckett was kind of drawn to to his stuff mm. well all comedians yes i have in the end don't they <laughs> you all get melancholy in the end well he kind of said i mean even the general's pretty straight for the first 10 minutes or so. I mean, there's little, or so. I mean, there's little character things that are done, but it doesn't really start kicking along as a, as a big uh, slapstick film until after the train pulls out of the station, you know, there's a, or, or he's trying to sign up to, to join the civil war. You know, there's a, there's a lot of, I think, I, you know, as far as I, as far as I could tell, just as an observer, he did seem to put a lot of stock and this must've been instinct into setting up the character 
And even though the character of Buster Keaton was kind of, you know, it was close enough from film to film that you would recognise certain things and know that Buster would do certain things. He did, as in our, our hospitality or the, or the general, even our relations, he would actually uh, go to some effort to say, well, this character, in addition to just my usual stuff, is also this person in this film for this story. And uh, you're right, you didn't get that with Harold Lloyd. Uh, Harold Lloyd actually put together a compilation of his own in 1965 called, uh, I think, called The World of Harold Lloyd. Uh, and it was that's a great if if you if you can't afford all the Criterion collection of the Harold Lloyd films. In fact, it's probably it's been very difficult to get the Harold Lloyd films. Uh, but I think they're out now, and maybe it's a Criterion collection. But if you just wanted a uh, a nice sort of uh, compilation of his best jokes, then that film's not bad to go to. Just as if you're looking for Buster Keaton stuff and you can't afford to buy all the the various DVDs. Uh, Lindsay Anderson, uh, I think at least narrated and maybe put together a wonderful three-part documentary series called uh, Buster Keaton, A Hard Act to Follow, which if you can get that is also a great uh, compendium of all those, all those great Buster Keaton prints. So they're all pretty crisp and clear, the vision. They are great. They are really worthy. Worth. Uh, I mean, I'm, I hope the Slapstick Festival is able to up and be up and running in January. I'll just give a plug to the fact they're putting up stuff at the moment online and doing watch parties and things. And if you can support the Slapstick Festival, it's, it's, it's always a wonderful thing. Uh, um, we've run out of time, which is... Uh, oh. We've had a 40-minute lecture between all three of us on the nature of canned laughter. And I don't know if we've moved any further with our understanding of canned laughter. But I hope, you, I hope you've enjoyed our canned laughter module. It was interesting. No, I like it. I genuinely, that's the thing is, this is the difference between having an audience and not having an audience is sometimes when we do things which are, well, all the time when we do things which are exceptionally niche, we've never managed to, you know, shy away from being exceptionally niche. You do think, I wonder what everyone thinks. And then you get people going, wow, that's a really fascinating look at uh, canned laughter. Yeah, I love stuff like that. And I do, I, I, th I think it's all of those different things that, I think it's because we're all fans, aren't we? You know what I mean? It's like, you don't lose that. I mean, that's true of Graham as well, I think, you know, mm. and people like Barry Cryer and and Bill and Tim, you know, that they're, they're, they're people who still love watching the work of everyone else, you know, and going... Yeah, I agree. And you can, if, they, if it's any good and, and, and the stuff you're introduced to as a child, you have a, a further appreciation of as you get older and you can see it from many, many different angles and while you necessarily don't want to go as far as some of those Kubrick fans you were talking about, um, it, comedy is endlessly fascinating to me. And, uh, and it's also, um, you know, great to speak with like-minded people who are also as enthusiastic. And, uh, you know, if that's shared with uh, your audience, then uh, that's got to be a good thing. That's a shared experience, uh, which we're all being denied at the moment. Do you have, is there a, do you have one particular film? that you find yourself going, what am I going to watch tonight? You know what? I mean, like what I watched the other night, which I would again, highly recommend to everyone is because uh, it's just joy. It is just pure joy is James Stewart in Harvey, which I think it was yeah. the famous, the, the puka, the giant rabbit. It's just sure. joy. And, and for a time yeah. like this, sometimes, uh, do you have certain foods? You go, that's the one I need now. I'm going back to that. Well, there's, there's, there's It's a Wonderful Life, which is a, a film that I don't necessarily only watch at Christmas. I, I actually, that's that's probably the favourite one. But in terms of in terms of comedy, I would always go for uh, the uh, the Philadelphia Story with Cary Grant and oh. uh, James Stewart and Catherine Hepburn. And that to me is one of the. And there, you talk about slapstick. You know, there it is. The, I think this is probably nineteen late thirties, early forties. I can't quite remember when it was, uh, but. Uh, 
you know, without too much effort, that that slapstick is still in that film. You know, that that is in that bringing out baby as well. You know, those two films I would happily watch as a double feature. I bring it up, baby. What about you, Josie? Well, well, I mean, it's a wonderful life in the Philadelphia story. Are two like that I will watch pretty much every year. I think each of them because, um, yeah, one is, and also for me, it's like the nature of the dialogue is so thrilling to me, and I yearn for that kind of dialogue in modern things. Um, I and I yearn for that kind of sort of withering. Um, withering female character as well, withering put downs. Um, what I've been watching myself in lockdown uh, is mainly children's television, and I have a lot of very strong <laughs> opinions about it. Very strong opinions about the political orientations of various characters, uh, the secret lives of various characters, um, whether or not certain people who wrote it should be put in prison. Um, so that's been most of my life. I also have rewatched all of Succession, which I would not have thought I would be drawn to in um, in lockdown. But it's been absolutely a joy to rewatch it and to find it. Like, I just want to watch it again straight away because each time I've watched it, I've been like, how did I miss that joke? How did I miss that line? How did I miss that incredible look? And um, so, yeah, I think it's still one of the best pieces of television of the past, like 20, 30 years. It's wonderful. Brilliant. Thank you so much. I was actually Peppa Pepper Pig. Watch out for the fact oh. on YouTube there are oh. a lot of lurid re-edited uh, Peppa Pig. My, my son's favourite fact is that uh, Peppa Pig, there's an episode that was banned in Australia because it says be nice to spiders. And obviously that's fine Mr. for a UK Skinny based. Mr. Yeah. Skinny Legs. I know the episode. I've watched it many times. Um, <laughs> my strong opinion is on Peppa Pig. Everyone says that Daddy Pig is a Tory, right? Everyone like thinks it's hilarious <laughs> to say Daddy Pig is a Tory. Daddy Pig, I've been watching it. Daddy Pig's not a Tory, right? Daddy Pig is a comrade. His wife is a Tory. All they do is mock him and belittle him. It's a nightmare. Daddy Pig is the embodiment of living as a socialist in modern Britain, mocked by all around him. Thank you for coming. Module, <laughs> two, module two, following the can after module, will be Peppa Pig uh, tomorrow at uh, ten thirty a.m. Thank you so much for for joining us, Sean. Uh, and uh, it, nice to see you. Thank you so, so much. Oh, I wish we could. Yeah, so many more things we could have talked about. And uh, um, we're going to just quickly mention again Patreon. Uh, we're putting up a new Patreon, by the way, as well. I'm not sure if it's up yet. Trent will probably a little speech bubble will pop up for me in a moment. But. Uh, We've got a new Patreon, which is for everything that we're making, and uh, we are trying to make as much as possible. Some of you, may, I know, some of you enjoyed the Richard Feynman documentary that we uh, made recently as well. Patreon.com uh, slash uh, Cosmic Shambles, I think that's uh, right, is uh, where you can go uh, and find out. So if you can support us via that, we can keep making loads of stuff. And there's a tip jar at the bottom if you can't be bothered to go through that, and if you haven't got the uh, either wherewithal or the resources, that's fine as well. Um, Thank you so much for joining us, everyone. Josie, have a lovely day. I'll see Thanks you tomorrow. Well, you too. Everyone, have a nice evening. Um, and uh, <laughs> and uh, Jess, uh, we promise not to give we you promise not any, to give uh, you any uh, addendum at this time. And going, ah, oh, well, actually, Jess, your song is not <laughs> about. We're not the whatever. There's no more footnotes. Okay, I promise you that. Um, yeah. Jess, what is your uh, what, what's your final song? This song today? is called "By the Sea," and I wrote it down on the coast of. Um, 
Daniel Anglesey, which is down in the Victorian coast. And, yeah, it's just about missing living by the ocean. So, yeah, no real anecdotes could be made about that, I suppose. <laughs> and um, I'm warning you there is a whistling solo in this, which I will perform. Um, so, yeah, be prepared for that. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you so much. And remember, as I mentioned before, Jess Hitchcock Music, uh, for all of you out there, if you can, try and support, you as, can, many, try and support as many of the, uh, the live acts that are not out there doing live who are still making songs and making work uh, because then it means when all of this is lifted all of that art is still going to exist and still be available for everyone uh ladies and welcome to uh, a second time to uh their front cushion uh that i shouldn't say that because i think people are going to keep focusing on that it's just such a good cushion here is jess hitchcock thanks very much <laughs>
Thank you very much for listening. Don't forget cosmicshambles.com slash stay at home to catch up on all the previous episodes, find out who's coming up on upcoming episodes and to leave a tip for acts and artists and venues who are hit hardest at the moment. And if you'd like to support us at the Cosmic Shambles Network, patreon.com slash cosmic shambles. Oh.